scripture I read this morning talked about Jesus walking on the water. But I'd also like to read another scripture about Jesus with his disciples in a rough storm. We have two that run through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to read from Mark's uh, account in Mark 6, starting at verse 45. I hate these thin pages. Bear with me. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. You know what? I'm reading the wrong scripture. Let's back it up just a tad. To Mark 4.35. I knew something was wrong. Yeah, you can't win them all. Let's try again here. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Yet Jesus was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? But they were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. We have these two stories of Jesus in a storm. Jesus with his disciples. The one that I just read happened earlier in his walk with the disciples. The one that I read at the beginning where he walked out onto the water and met the disciples happened later in his work. I'd like to put on the slide screens a painting done by Rembrandt. It's the only painting Rembrandt did of a seascape, uh, of a sea scene. And in this sea scene, you have a phenomenal picture of Jesus. You can barely see him. Even if you're up close here, you can barely see Jesus. He's way down in the bottom right-hand corner here. His face is clear, but you have to look for him. When, when, your pick, when your eye goes to the picture, it immediately sees the sail. It sees the man straining at the rope. The rope has snapped and is blowing in the furious wind. Another uh, disciple holding on to the mast for dear life as a wave washes over him. And there's, a, there's two scenes here almost. One on the upper part where people are straining 
to try to make things right before they drown. And then down on the lower side where Jesus is. And Jesus, in contrast to the disciples who are frantically trying to save their lives with their measly efforts, in contrast, Jesus is quiet and calm and resting and has just woken up because two disciples have grabbed him and said, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? And he looks completely calm. And they, only a few of them are looking at him. And Rembrandt, interestingly enough, you may not be able to see it from afar, but in the very lowest figure in the picture is a seasick disciple leaning over the side because of the waves. The whole picture is one vast fury and movement, and the only calm person, the only calm center in the picture is the person of Jesus. You can see the prow of the ship fighting up over the wave and the calmness of Jesus in the center. Rembrandt contrasts the calmness of Jesus, as I mentioned, with that of the disciples. Let me read a quote from uh, Harry Abrams' book on Rembrandt. He says this, When he painted this canvas in 1633, Rembrandt spectacularly achieved the effect he was after. The wildness of the storm thrilled him and gave him full opportunity to transform the desperate struggles of the disciples into one powerful surge of movement. With the calm figure of Jesus forming a contrast to and the only resting point in the turbulence. Let me read that last part again. The wildness of the storm thrilled Rembrandt, and he, it gave him full opportunity to transform the desperate struggles of the disciples into one powerful surge of movement, with the calm figure of Jesus forming a strong contrast to and the only resting point in the turbulence. Both scenes have a similar motif, but for different reasons. In this one, the disciples in their early stages of following Jesus realized they had gotten into more than they'd bargained for. That this itinerant teacher, who might have even been a prophet, and they were hoping way down deep in their hearts that he might be the, uh, might be the Messiah, this one that they had begun to follow, they began to realize as he stood up, and rebuke the wind and the waves, they realized they were in for more than they bargained for. They were in the presence of somebody with such awesome power, such calmness in the midst of, of uh, turbulence, that they were terrified. Interestingly, at the beginning of the story, they were terrified at the waves. And at the end of the story, they're terrified at Jesus, who just calmed the waves. Let's go to the next picture, which is a painting by a Chinese artist in this century, Monica Lu Hope of China, who was born in 1928. She became a Christian later in her life, or early in her life, and, and uh, her mother, who was a Christian, and her father, who was not, later her father, converted to Christ as well. You'll notice once again, whenever we get pictures of Jesus from any land, whether it's Europe in the 1600s or China in the 1900s, the tendency is always to paint Jesus like yourself. 
You'll notice the disciple, the apostles, are all Chinese. You'll notice that Jesus is Chinese. Now, I think there's a part to this that's very good. You noticed in Rembrandt, Jesus looks a bit like a Dutch person, and the disciples look a bit Dutch. And in many of Rembrandt's religious paintings, the, uh, the, uh, the people standing around are wearing clothes that would fit in 1600s in, in his country. So I think there's a good part to that in that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to, to identify with it. And there's a natural tendency for us to want to see Jesus in a comfortable way, as someone who can relate to our own lives. And I think that is an accurate part, an accurate part of the incarnation. God coming to earth and taking on a form that we can relate to. Now there's a danger here too, isn't there? The danger is that we would fashion all of Jesus into our own likeness. That we would fashion his teachings into our teachings, rather than us taking his teachings and adapting ours. So it's, it's a two-edged sword. On the front end, it's good that he can identify with us and that we can identify with him. But on the back side, we've got to be careful that we don't make a Jesus of our own crafting. A, a Jesus who... who uh, who fits our culture and who fits everything we already believe. Now, in this painting, uh, Pei paints the picture a little bit later than Rembrandt did. Remember, Rembrandt had the painting taken, number one, from the back side of the boat. This is from the front side. Jesus has risen up, and it almost looks as though he's, he's in resurrected form here as he rises up in the center of the front of the boat. And he is the powerful figure, not the calm figure. The, the waves are just beginning to subside. The power of Jesus with his outstretched arms and almost all of the apostles looking up at him. I think Pei had studied the Rembrandt picture because she also has a sick disciple down in the lower right-hand side of the boat. But Jesus, it is a Jesus of power to deal with struggles. And one apostle, at least, is looking up to Jesus with outstretched arms. The man holding onto the mask is turned around looking at Jesus. And there's a sense that as they look at Jesus, they're gathering hope. And the waves are already to begin, beginning to go down. Now, both pictures talk about trust. The first one... The first two pictures of, from the first episode talk about who is Jesus that they should trust in him. That he is much more than they ever imagined him to be. And one of the problems about being at Westmont College, a Christ-centered liberal arts college where you're required to study the Bible and to listen to me talk once a week, one of the problems with this is that Jesus can become so shrunk down he, he can become so much a part of normal life that knowing Christ is just like going to the D.C. for one more meal. That there's not the awesome power, the terrifying sense, who is this man? And so we can be trusting in a pedantic Jesus, in a Jesus who demands little when we're in the midst of... Of a, of a Christ-centered liberal arts college where we hear so much about him. We can begin to lose the power. Jesus was never that way in real life. He was full of surprise. But the second thing we learn from this is that in the midst of turbulent troubles in our lives, we can turn to him and we can trust him. 
All was calm, it says, when Jesus calmed the waves. All was calm. Perhaps even the beginning of calmness was starting in the hearts of the apostles as they realized who they were following. But trust is key as they look to Jesus. I've asked a student to come share with us this morning a bit of her experience in trusting the Lord, uh, and in particular, her experience on the urban program, where she uh, was a part of the Westmont Urban Program this last year, and uh, she has a particular instance. Most of you know about urban. Some of you, I hope, will plan to go on it. It's a full semester program in San Francisco because Westmont College decided it would be good to figure out what is it like to serve Christ in the midst of an urban center. And in a smaller group setting where you meet with other students, you live together in community, you have internships out in the community, you get a full semester's credit for study and internship, and you reflect on the nature of following Christ in the heart of the city. Kim Stoka is going to come and share with you now one of her experiences in trusting the Lord on Urban. Let's welcome Kim. Good morning. I'm going to share an experience I had while on the Urban program. Last semester, my internship was at the Youth Guidance Center in San Francisco, and I specifically worked in private placement for juvenile offenders, and that was in the probation department. My job as a probation officer was to place my clients in group or foster homes. And one, one placement in particular was extremely challenging, and that's the one I'm gonna talk about today. I placed my client in a foster home and uh, as usual, as we drove to the foster home, I encouraged her and told her that I felt like it was going to be a great experience, encouraged her to follow the program and assured her that it was going to be a good experience. When we went to the home, we had knocked on the door and, and I wasn't sure anyone was home. Finally, after waiting for five minutes, uh, two kids came up and we were invited in and I greeted the foster mother. and. She didn't say anything. She was so busy watching her TV and really couldn't take time to answer any of the questions I had. And the client I was with, the girl, um, was obviously not feeling very comfortable about the situation. She was fearful that this mother was not going to care anything about her and she was going to have to spend at least a year, maybe two, with this family. And it was at that point um, that I just, I was really scared. I didn't know what to do. I just started praying. I excused myself and went to the bathroom and prayed in the bathroom that uh, God would just take control of the situation. Um, it was also at that point that I called my supervisor and said, I need your help. I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't feel good about it. I don't think she's going to stay here for longer than a day. Tell me what to do. And I had to trust God at that point. I had to trust that he'd given me the skills and the knowledge to make a wise decision at that point. And that was exactly what my supervisor said. He said, Kim, you need to make the decision here. I'm not there. I don't know how bad the situation is and what, how the foster mother's handling it, how your client's handling it. You need to make that decision for yourself. And whatever decision you make, I'm going to back you up on it. So 
I decided to take her back home with me, which is a really tough decision because if I left her there, she may stay for one day, she may stay for two hours. It's hard to know. She definitely was not comfortable there. The other option was to bring her back to Juvenile Hall with me, uh, which was also a difficult decision because the kids who were there, most of them have been there for six months to a year, and that's the last place they want to be is back in Juvenile Hall. But I decided to do that because I knew she wasn't comfortable in staying. So we drove back that evening, and I rebooked her into Juvenile Hall. And two weeks later, we were able to place her in a different foster home, and she's very happy there and still there today. So. I just wanted to share that experience on how I had to trust God and one of the many, actually, at Urban. Thanks. I think a life of following Christ is a life of learning how to trust. The second episode that we talked about, Jesus was, had just fed the 5,000. I forgot to mention that before I read it. He just fed the 5,000, and then he sent the disciples out in the boat, and he went up to pray, and he came out at night walking on the water. And in one of the Gospels, it said he had planned to just walk on by them. But they spotted him and were horrified and screamed out, It's a ghost! And then he had to calm them down. So he walks over to the boat, and he says, Take courage, it is I. And uh, he gets inside the boat, and, and the water calms down. Or in John's Gospel, they reach the land right at that moment. It's interesting that in Mark's Gospel, he climbed in the boat with them. The wind died down, and it says, They were amazed because they had not understood the lesson about the loaves. He gets in the boat. The waves calm down. You might want to think, don't you guys remember when he did this the other time? But it says they were amazed, and then the gospel writer puts in, and it was because they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves and the fishes. What was that lesson? It was a lesson on trust. It was a lesson on facing an impossible situation, the feeding of probably some 15 or 20,000 people. It says there were 5,000 men. There were also women and children there. With five little fish and a few loaves or whatever it was. And, they came, and the key to that whole story is that the child brought the lunch and put it in the hands of Jesus. The key isn't that, that the child made those things multiply. The key is that he took his little in the midst of an impossible situation and he placed it in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus, through the trust of this child, fed some 20,000 people, I would guess. It said they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves, the lesson that we're to bring our struggles, we're to bring our good times, we're to bring everything to the hands of Jesus so that he can break it and multiply it and bless others through it. It's interesting what Jesus says after that. He arrives on the shore, and I didn't read this part in John 6, but he actually tells us exactly what it was about. Well, I read part of it where they had asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And they had something very specific in mind. When they asked that question, they had very religious 
ideas in mind. Should we offer sacrifices? Should we stay ceremonially clean? Should we visit the temple a certain number of times a year? Should we be in synagogue every week? Should They had a whole host of ideas. What must we do to do the work that God requires or the works that God requires, as they put it in the plural? And Jesus simply says this, the work of God for you is this. It's to trust in the one whom he has sent. It's to believe on the one whom he has sent. It is to rely on the one whom he has sent. Who is the one whom God has sent? It's the man standing in in the front of the boat. It's the man calmly asleep at the stern of the boat. It's the man who walked out and said, take courage, it's I. It is Jesus Christ whom we are to put our trust in. But then the conversation goes on, and this part I didn't read earlier. They asked him, well, what miraculous sign will you give us so that we may see it and believe in you? These are the same people that just saw 20,000 people fed with a few fish. What will you do? Our forefathers ate bread in the desert, and it was written that he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I'll tell you the truth. It is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And they began to grumble about this. It's interesting. They wanted this bread that would bring eternal life. And he says, fine, I'll be happy to give it to you. It's it's I myself. It's the one whom God has sent to demonstrate the love of God, the Father, for every human being. Just put your trust in me. Come and eat of the bread. And he goes on in the passage later to say, in fact, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then not only did the crowds begin to grumble, but his disciples, more than the 12, some 70 perhaps more of his disciples who were following it, they began to grumble and say, eat his body, drink his flesh. Have we followed a kook? What's going on here? This is a hard teaching, they said. And it says that his disciples began to leave him one by one. And then he turns to the twelve. And he says, will you also leave me? They had plenty of reason to, didn't they? This teaching didn't make a whole lot of sense. It does to us 2,000 years later because we think of communion when we think of eating the body and drinking the blood. But they didn't know that. Will you also lead me? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words that ring of eternal life. You know, Peter didn't say, well, hey, this isn't such a tough teaching. We'll eat your body and drink your blood, Lord. No problem. He didn't pretend that Jesus wasn't asking something strange. He just said, Lord, where else would we go? Your words ring of eternal life. They ring of the very life of God. We've tasted them. We've touched them. We've sensed them. And even though this is confusing, even though we don't get it, where else can we go? And they stayed. Now, God is calling on us, I believe, to experience his own life, the life that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share together. I think he's calling us to trust him in stormy times. 
when I was 30 years old and had been married about nine years, our marriage entered a very stormy time. I was an evangelist with Young Life. I was teaching people about Jesus in high schools and junior highs around the city of Denver, leading Bible studies, counseling people. And then quietly and shockingly, I began to realize that my own marriage was running up on the rocks. And at first, I didn't believe it was very serious. I thought, oh, well, we'll just, I just need to pay a little more attention here. And then I remember a horrible moment when I said to my wife, you know, I sense you're pretty angry at me. And she said, no, not really. I'm very angry at you. And I'm angry all the time. And my heart just sank. To have the person you love the most on the face of the earth, honestly and vulnerably, but, but firmly share with you that she feels anger toward you all the time. And I realized we weren't just in a small storm. Somehow in my obliviousness, I had not noticed that the boat was about to sink. So we began to go to, counselor, to, to a counselor to work on it, which was very embarrassing for me because I was a counselor. It was very humbling. And then I was embarrassed that I was embarrassed. To go and ask for help on a marriage when I was out preaching about Jesus and life and all this other stuff was very difficult, very humiliating. And then as we got into counseling, I wish I could tell you, oh, that just solved it like that. Actually, things got worse, much worse. You know, often when a wound is deep and it's been treated wrongly and it's festered up, the surgeon has to slice it open and create more pain and more pus and more ugliness before he can have it heal properly. And that's what we experienced. And for about two years, we worked hard. And I'm very fortunate to be married to a woman these 27 years who is stubborn enough to stay with me and stubborn enough to work on a marriage and committed enough to do whatever it takes to make it through a tough storm. And if she were telling this story, as I've heard her tell it, she would tell it similarly because there were things both of us were doing to wound one another, some of them in ignorance, some of them in weakness, and some of them intentionally. And some of the wounds ran very deep. Through the midst of it, we kept turning to Jesus. And I remember walking down a road in Colorado with a friend. And I remember him saying, Bart, if all goes wrong, meaning if the marriage is not saved, which at that point I felt was about 50-50. He said, even if the marriage fails, you will be all right. And I remember that was a tremendous comfort because I knew I was going to work as hard as I could work to make the marriage work. I knew my wife was working as hard as she could to make it work from her side. But it was comforting to know that even if it turned into a disaster, like the disaster of the cross of Jesus, I would be all right if I kept my faith in the right place. See, faith in Jesus doesn't always mean success. But it's the best possible hope for success in relationships. So I believe we're called to trust God in the stormy times. When you want to say to Jesus, wake up, Jesus. 
Don't you care that this marriage is going down the tubes? It's an interesting image. Let's go back to the Rembrandt picture. It's an interesting image that the disciples feel compelled to wake up God and to let him know that things are serious. Interesting thought. They wake up Jesus, the Son of God, and they say to him, Don't you care? Don't you even know? You're sound asleep. And sometimes I feel that way in the midst of storms, as though God has gone to sleep. The book Silence, which many of you have read in literature class by Shishako Endo, raises this question, what do you do when God is silent? And I say you trust him in the midst of his silence, and you make the hard choices as the primary figure in that book had to make. I'll save that story for another time. So we trust him in stormy times, but we're also called to trust him in fearful times. You know, this morning we heard a story of a fearful time when Kim was afraid. She had a lot riding on this decision. She had a young woman's future riding on the decision she made. That is a fearful responsibility. And she did exactly the right thing, in my opinion. I didn't know exactly what she was going to share until just a few minutes before chapel. She prayed. She turned to God for wisdom. Then she did the next right thing. She turned to her supervisor, whom God had supplied. And the supervisor, interestingly enough, gave her the the moral power to say, Kim, you can make the right choice. She turned to Christ. She got comfort. She made a hard choice. We're meant to trust Christ in the midst of fearful times. Some of you are facing the fear of living with a broken family. Some of you probably came to Westmont this fall with an intact family and heard this fall that your parents are breaking up. And it's a fearful time. I say trust Christ in the midst of the fear. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. Faith is exercising trust in the face of fear. Remember what Jesus said when he was walking on the water or when they woke him up, when he was walking on the water and met them? He said, don't be afraid. What happened to your faith? He said it in both situations. And the third area I'll close on is that we're called to trust Christ in confusing times. We're called to trust him in stormy times, in fearful times, but we're also called to trust in Jesus Christ when things are just confusing. They may not be particularly scary. They, they may not be particularly stormy. But they're, they're very, very complicated. And many of you will go through this at Westmont. Because the simple faith you came in with, you're beginning to find, was also perhaps a bit simplistic. Simple faith is a virtue. Simplistic faith is not. Mother Teresa had simple faith. St. Francis of Assisi had simple faith. Martin Luther had simple faith. John Calvin had simple faith, but they did not have a simplistic faith. And some of you in these four years are being asked to wrestle with complexities about the Bible, about trusting Christ, which are confusing. And I want to tell you in the midst of them, hold on to, cling to, wrap your arms around the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you have gone on cross-cultural teams 
to India, to Sri Lanka, to Honduras, to Guatemala, to the urban centers. We're working on a ministry through Christian Concerns where we might have an urban uh, potter's clay this spring in Watts. For those of you who choose to go on that, believe me, you will have to trust in the midst of confusing things, where things, your prejudices are assaulted and torn down, and things aren't quite as simple as you think. And I say in those times, cling to Jesus Christ. Use your mind, sort out the data, learn all you can, but don't let go of Christ in the midst of it. Now the last point I want to make is that from this scene in the beginning of their following of Jesus to the scene where he walked on the water, they were still having to learn the same lesson. And that is how to actively put their faith in Christ. And I would submit to you that I could show you scenes from the resurrection, scenes from the crucifixion, scenes from the ascension, scenes from Pentecost, scenes from the book of Acts, where they would be at, being asked to continue to learn to trust more deeply and more fully and obey more radically Jesus Christ. The life of a disciple is a life of learning how to trust. They asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he said, the work of God for you is to trust in the one whom he has sent. Let's be quiet for a moment. And I want to lead you in a prayer as we close. I'm not going to pray as much as guide you to pray quietly in your own hearts. Some of you are in the midst of a stormy time right now. For those of you who are not, pray for those who are. For those of you who are, look the storm in the face right now. Look at the wind. Look at the waves. Take in the fury of the storm that you're facing. Don't try to pretend anymore that it's only a squall. But now I want you to look at the back of the boat as this storm is going on all around you. And I want you to see Jesus Christ there asleep 